0: Well, here's the quiz, September 11th, 2001, what was that, yes, here's one, December 7th, 1941, Pearl Harbor, and your sister was born, she's really old, I'm just kidding, How about this one? June 6th, 1944. D-Day. D-Day, on the beaches of Normandy. How about this one? This is some of, only a few of you will remember this one. April 14th, 1865. Lincoln's assassination. Yes. Okay, here's a couple tougher ones. January 28th, 1986. Yes, the space shuttle Challenger explosion, yes. How about this one? This one's even more obscure. May 6th, 1937. 37? No, not the Titanic. That was 1912. Nope. The Hindenburg disaster. Okay, how about this one? October 31st, 1517. (laughs) Columbus (laughs) sailed the ocean blue in 1492. Yes. No, our biggie for this week, for this study, is October 31st, 1517. You may not know any other dates in the 1500s or 1600s or 1700s, but of all the dates, October 31st, 1517, a monk named Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses on the doors in Wittenberg or if you're German, you'd say Wittenborg. Now, in 1519, exactly 500 years ago, this year was what's called the Leipzig debate. Two years after the 95 thesis, the Leipzig debate where Martin Luther debated Johann Eck. You don't have to remember any of this. Exactly 500 years ago, they debated the authority of Scripture. And so, I wanted to share a quote from Martin Luther's theses. He said this Out of love for truth and the desire to bring it to light, the following propositions will be discussed at Wittenberg under the presidency of the Reverend Father Martin Luther. And that's how this document began that we call the 95 Theses. And he nailed it to the door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg at high noon on October 31st, 1517. Nailing things to doors was how you did it back then. Today, we post, we blog, we post, we tweet, we text, unfortunately. Some of those things are are crazy. Luther was being strategic because the very next day, on November 1st, it was All Saints Day, and many people would come to church then and enjoy the feast. You see, they had Christmas and Easter and All Saints Day people only also. That wasn't (laughs) just for today. And many people would come to church, they would enjoy this big feast. It was where everybody received all their news back then. The printing press had only been invented about 50 years earlier. And his post caught people's attention. Someone took the statements off the door and put them in this printing press, and they made copies within two weeks' time. And this is before TV, internet, decent roads. Those things had spread 700 miles all across Europe and it lit a fire, and it set into motion what we now call the Great Reformation. It was a new understanding of theology that changed the world. Sola fide, meaning faith, sola scriptura, meaning scripture, sola gratia, which was grace, solus Christus, meaning Christ, and solo gloria dei, meaning glory of God, by faith alone, by scripture alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone were what these were called. It was called a call back to the Christ event for our salvation. And I guess I would say, what if the healthiest thing that you and I could do this week Was reform our lives or ask God to reform our lives. That we ourselves would be part of a great reformation within what's going on in our lives. In the midst of your brokenness at home, at work, in your relationships, within yourself, think of what a reformation might do as God calls us back to our roots. And this takes us to our roots literally. We line up historically with the Protestant Reformation. The 95 Theses, you know, if you read them today, you'd be shocked. They don't say all that much, and they don't contain full-fledged, what we would call Protestantism, Christianity. And there are no protests in there. They're just only against the abuse of the church's indulgences. Indulgences were a giant. Has anybody here ever been to the Vatican? You know how that got paid for? Indulgences, yeah. It was the abuse of indulgences, which were this giant manipulative tax of sorts for the Pope. And the theology of the Protestant Reformation got set in motion. And the theology set Martin Luther in motion. And there is a great movie that's about 14 years old called Luther. If you want to see it, um, it's starring that, is it Joseph Fiennes? He was just in the movie... um, the one about the resurrection like two years ago mm-hmm. yeah um, I saw it risen is it called risen yeah. risen yeah so he was also in that um, dinner with a vampire or something like that <laughs> but he must be a Christian because he's done some of these these Christian films now just to clarify we're looking at, at these five emphases in Bible study um, of what became labeled the, the Protestant Reformation. It's not, we're not against Catholicism. The fact is in 1517, 1519, 500 years ago, everybody was Catholic. That was our church. It was the church, yours and mine. But Luther's theses became the talk of the world and the watershed issue and What we're going to do is take a look at those. Now, most people would talk about in faith alone as the first one because that's what hit him. But I wanna back up a little bit in a way and I want to do um, in scripture alone first because that's um, what we're aiming at in terms of this Bible study. So this great reformation began with Martin Luther The five big ideas, faith alone, scripture alone, grace alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. And here's what happened 500 years ago. Scripture was rediscovered. And thousands of people had a personal reformation when they encountered scripture in their heart language. Think about it. It wasn't like, you know, they try to get movements going today where they'll think up some really great title of something And then try to launch a movement. This was not a group of people saying, let's launch something called the Great Reformation. This was millions of people having an an interpersonal reformation in their own hearts. And it happened in such a wave that it became connected, and then people realized how many folks had had this encounter with Jesus, this touch of Christ. And then it kind of got labeled the Great Reformation. But here's what happened. They had this encounter with Christ when they encountered Scripture in their heart language. Now, this is amazing because for over a 1,000 years, people couldn't read Scripture. In the late 300s A.D., the early church said, these 66 ancient documents are the word of God brought together. And the Holy Spirit used the early church and they said, this here is the word of God and we're going to place it up here and submit ourselves to its authority. The canon of faith, the rule of faith, the version that they had, they translated into Latin. It was called the Latin Vulgate. You're getting a little bit of a history lesson as we launch into this. It was called the, translated into Latin because the Bible is three languages, none of which are Latin, none of which are English. The church said there will be no more translations. The rule of the faith, all is set. But the problem is Rome collapses. Latin becomes a dead language and the people can't read at all. No one is using it anymore back in the fifth century. But the church said the Latin Vulgate is what we're going to use. All church doctrines were based on this. And now, over the next thousand years, people become disconnected from the Bible. And some of them still are. And some of us still are. They relied on the church, and they relied on those who could read. I mean, some of it was just practical stuff. Over the years, the church formed doctrine. Well, along came John Wycliffe in the 1300s in England. And he thought the Bible shouldn't just be in the hands of a few people the bible should be in everybody's hands. And these few people, some of them were using that authority to exert power over other people and to manipulate it, knowing the people can't really read it and check it for themselves. And John Wycliffe was courageous. He took the bible and he translated it into English. How many anybody have any relatives or ever worked with the Wycliffe Bible translators? Yeah, a bunch of people. Yeah. So he was courageous. He translated it into English for the people in the English-speaking world. And you'd think this would be celebrated, right? With parades and with parties that he cared enough to give them the Bible. But no, the church was so offended by translating it from Latin into a language people could read. They had a council, like a trial, and they decided to kill him. Our, yes, our glorious history. He died right before they could execute him, and that's the ugly part of the Middle Ages. Well, following in the shadows of John Wycliffe was John Huss, in the 1400s in Prague, the Czech Republic. This Catholic priest's life was changed by Jesus. And he also said the Bible shouldn't, should be in the hands of the people. And he started reading it differently, and he began to realize what he'd been taught. Many of the things were not in the Bible. Like indulgences, you pay money to get forgiveness, purgatory, things like that. And Huss began writing books against this. Now, you'd think he'd be celebrated, right? But you know what happened, don't you? No. They said, John Huss, why don't you come here? We'll have a council. We'll debate. And he went thinking he would talk about this. They arrested him humiliated him as a heretic and they said recant of everything you've been teaching will you recant no the bible says these things and they burned him at the stake in Prague you can still see a plaque there where that happened he took this bible and said this is what determines doctrine this is what determines truth that was in the 1400s now a hundred years later was Martin Luther he could not feel loved by God. He was taught all the ways that you earn salvation, you are in favor with God, and he never could. He could read the Bible, the New Testament, and came across this: "The just shall live by faith," in Romans 1:17. And he said, "I'm not saved by the teachings of the church, but by the grace of Jesus Christ through faith in Him." And after that, Martin Luther read the Bible differently. You know, if you are approaching this without faith in Christ, it kind of is a bunch of do's and don'ts. And so we've got to stop blaming everybody for not getting it. But when you come to faith in Christ, if you spend your time doing the do's, you don't have time to do the don'ts. And even if you could, you wouldn't. So you don't, so you can't, so it's good. (laughs) Yo, <laughs> you're recording that. Oh, good. Good. So, Martin Luther read the Bible differently. Talking about Jesus from start to finish. From Genesis through Revelation, the Old Testament is pointing people to Christ, and the New Testament is about his arrival and what happens after that. So, the righteousness of God is the righteousness of Christ for us. Now Martin Luther was a professor and he taught these teachings to the German students that he had in 1517 is when he put the theses up and he says, you say this, the Bible says that. And he thought that students would discuss this and you would think a guy helping the church do a better job would be celebrated and cheered, right? Right? But Martin Luther was called every name. They had a conversation with him in uh, Worm, it spelled like Worms, in Germany. And he was promised safety in another council. Martin Luther knew what happened to John Huss and John Wycliffe. He went at night, and with fear and trembling, and the idea of God's will to go, he went to Worms. They asked him about his teachings, and they called him into question, undermining the church. He was panicked, what do I do, what do I do, what do I say? And they said, we want to know, do you recant of these teachings? And Martin Luther made a decision and he said, is it the word of God versus the traditions of the church? And he said this, unless I am convinced by the authority of scripture, my confidence is captive to the word of God my confidence is captive to the word of God. And then Martin Luther said this, Therefore, I cannot and I will not recant of anything, of everything. And with hardly an audible voice, he said this, Here I stand on this foundation of scripture. On this, I will base my life and what I believe. I cannot do otherwise. May God help me. Amen. And he was allowed to go, but that night, before he could be sentenced and killed the next day, he was kidnapped to Marburg Castle, although nobody knew that's where he was. It's in Germany. He was hidden for a year. He was disguised as a monk, but do you know what he did? He translated the Hebrew and Greek Testaments into the German language so that the people could read it in their heart language. That's one of the unique things of Christianity, is that everyone can hear the word of God in their heart language, different from other world religions. So remember that the next time that we don't dig in, even five minutes a day, stop and remember, it wasn't always the case that the word of God was accessible. Remember that people took the Bible and translated it at the risk of their lives. And remember you are literate because the Bible did get translated. It was used to teach people how to read. It, was, it created a revolution of education and science and healthcare and more all because of a few people willing to risk their lives and were recipients of what he did 500 years later. And so it's not just the historical part, but it's also the fact that now it's time for us to think about God reforming our lives through scripture. Martin Luther came to say, by scripture alone, a backbone of the truth that is the ultimate source of authority for the church and for our lives, for teaching and practice. 500 years ago, the church had said, no, it's the tradition. Like, I'm a Methodist, I will always be a Methodist. That's, I mean, I could say that. That was me. So it was tradition first, scripture second. But when we got the Bible, we decided the Bible was going to take the highest position. And we talk about this in, we- in the work of Wesley, the quadrilateral. There's scripture, there's reason, there's experience, and there's um, script- scripture, re- tra- tradition, reason, an experience, thank you. But it's like a three-legged stool. It's not a rectangle like a quadrilateral like you learn in geometry. It's a three-legged stool and scripture is the seat. It is the superior of the stool. Tradition matters, reason matters, experience of the people of God matter. But if our minds or experiences or traditions tell us one thing and scripture tells us another, we claim scripture is primary. So, If you have your Bibles, one of my favorite, uh, we're going to look at several passages, and then we're going to dig in a little bit on Psalm chapter 1, or Psalm 1. And see, Hebrews 4.12, Hebrews 4.12. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Acts and the Letter to the Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians and Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus and Philemon, Hebrews. <laughs> 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 that, that's why the men are supposed to make the coffee in church. It's in the Bible, you know. <laughs> <I'm> page, 1547. <laughs> <laughs> page 1547, if you have the exact right copy. Um, Here's what it says. I'm going to read it, and then I want to hear all of us read this in whatever translation you have just to prove the point. Mine says this, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Let's read it. Out loud together and see how close we come. Ready? It's kind of a goofy exercise. Chapter 4, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. Are you ready? Let's hear it. Read it to your neighbor at least. One, two, three, go. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. (laughs) That's a great exercise. There are so many nuances that are still being learned about the first century Greek that this was written in that translators aren't just coming up with new words or new ways to say it. They are still finding in archeological digs, not just words in the Bible, but they'll find other, they're not just finding scrolls or uh, codexes of the book of Hebrews, but they're finding other documents from the exact same era that this was written in that add nuances to the meanings. Uh, They're using the same words that the authors use in Scripture, and it adds more meaning. So it is a double-edged sword. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. The Bible is potent. It is powerful. Think of it this way. If you got a text message from God, would you read it? You know, we cannot ignore text messages. Oh, there's one on my phone right now. We cannot ignore text messages, and it's no big deal to say oh, just a second, or you'll be like talking to somebody and like you're not looking at your phone and and you're not fooling anybody anymore. (laughs) The Bible is so potent and powerful, but if you got a text message from God, would you read it? Yes, we always read our texts. The fact is you and I received a text from God. And the Bible is a library of texts, a collection of 66 ancient books, ancient documents, over 40 different writers, and all of them tell one story, the story of redemption, recapturing what was lost. So today, if someone says to you, I don't believe in the Bible, I don't believe the Bible is true, you can know that's a pretty ill-informed statement. Their question doesn't make sense. If they, if they say that, you say this, winsomely and contagiously oh you don't believe oh wow you don't believe about your, which part what Moses wrote or the Psalms which are devotions or do you not believe that Matthew, Mark, Luke and John all? do you believe they lied about Jesus you see there's so many parts 66 ancient documents some written by peasants some written by kings The richness and the complexity of this makes that a very ignorant statement. It was written over about 1,600 years, written down. It was written in three languages. What are the languages? Greek. Greek, Hebrew, and a few small sections in Aramaic, which is like the ancient Arabic language. Nowhere else in ancient literature do you get the story, the history, and the commentary all in one. It is very rare in ancient literature. Remember, though, you may be the only Bible someone ever reads. The other thing that's interesting about the fact that the writers call the Bible sharper than any two-edged sword is what one thing about a two-edged sword is it cuts both ways. It, it's not just for out there. And, and the scripture even says dividing soul and spirit Joints in marrow, and you've got to remember: as you are encountering this, um, this Word of God, it's going to cut back at you, and it's going to cut into your heart, and it's going to reveal things to you that you were blind to, prejudices that you had, blind spots that you had. It's going to, it's going to cut open. Um, the shadow parts of your life, they might be f- due to your family of origin. And it's going when it, to, when it separates the bone and the marrow, it's going to bring light into areas in your own soul that you have yet to offer to the light of God. That's, I think, what's so powerful about this idea of a double-edged sword. So the Bible is very powerful but not if you don't read it. Thanks to Amy Grant and Michael W. Smith, we all know Psalm 119, all the old people among us, (laughs) of which I'm counting myself, know Psalm 119, verse 105. It says, thy word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. A specific lamp to your feet? David, who wrote this, David, that's really personal. It's showing my feet. It literally helps you like that. It's like, you're saying God knows the circumstances of my life, and David's saying that's exactly how it is. This is not just a big intellectual pursuit. This is someone desperate to be in touch with God. It's as if God is speaking to me. Being in God's word is practical, but when I get out of God's word, when I leave this behind, I magnify weaknesses in other people, and I overlook my own weaknesses. When I get out of God's word, I start blaming everyone. I start thinking my problems are somebody else's fault. When I read God's word, I realize my problems are my responsibility and theirs are theirs, meaning I don't have to solve everybody else's issues. I need that kind of a reformation in my life. It helps me set boundaries that God's Not that I'm not to care and help, and when a boulder lands in somebody else's life, I'm to be there to help pick it up. But if I don't read it, I magnify their weaknesses and I overlook my own. Another thing, if I'm not in God's word, I begin to evaluate the world as if that's all there is, as if there's no eternity, as if all there is is what you see. Nothing more than this world to live for when I open God's Word, I'm reminded that my life is a small part of a much bigger story. Think of your favorite actor that you'd go to see a movie just because they're in. What if there was somebody in the background, one of the extras, being like over Denzel Washington's shoulder? But you know what? When we get out of God's Word, that's what we try to do. We make it so much about ourselves that we do have a part to play in this amazing script. Not saying our life is a movie, of course, but we forget what our role is and who the primary mover is. And God's the star, God's the lead. And we are all a part of that story and on the journey all together. Another thing, when I get out of God's Word, I tend to close my hands on my possessions, my selfishness, my being self centered. I cling to stuff. It's directly related to my time in this book. Third, fourth, I tend to hold on to my anger too long when I get far away from this book. And I bet you do too. Maybe even moms and dads here. There is a reformation waiting. But it's kind of hard today because the Bible is so unique. Okay, quiz time again. What book is excluded from the wiki bestseller list? The Bible. The Bible is excluded from the wiki bestseller list. You know, Wikipedia wiki bestseller list. Do you know why? Because every single week it would be the bestseller. Isn't that awesome? I mean, I don't blame them for that. It's pretty impractical if only nine other books get named. So the first book, this book that's excluded from the Wiki bestseller list is our Bible. Now, what book is the first book that is banned, B-A-N-N-E-D? Any time a totalitarian government, any time a dictator, any time a fascist regime is uh, come into power? the Bible. What are they so threatened by? If it's all a bunch of myths. It changes people's lives. It empowers people. It reminds people of, I don't know, maybe the truth. There's really something to it. And how ironic that the dictators who are going with all their might against God Acknowledge that, and we don't. Martin Luther handed us a great gift, and he lived to tell about it. And the reason why is because Germany's further away from the Italians, so they couldn't get him. So, so the German prince was hiding Martin Luther up in the, the Marburg Castle, and they didn't know where to find him until the Protestant Reformation had enough steam to, to go on, I want us to, um, for the second part of this, to look at Psalm 1. If you open your Bible right down the middle Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st Kings, 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and the last book, Malachi. <laughs> Boy, I wish, th- <laughs> I wish I knew that in seminary. <laughs> How sad. Like our first quiz was you had to write down the books of the Bible in order, and I didn't even know that. <laughs> and spell them right for crying out loud. Seriously. Psalm 1. Try saying that without singing. I know, I, I would have to. The amount of gray matter in my brain that is devoted to song lyrics from the 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s, I'm, I'm a warped person. So I would have to literally slow down my brain and sing it but say it. Psalm 1. This says, Blessed is the man, but blessed is the one. Blessed is the person who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. On his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season. And whose leaf does not wither, whatever he does prospers. Not so the wicked, they are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This psalm, which opens the whole 150 psalms this, the, You know the psalms are like the hymn book of the Hebrew people And Jesus quotes the psalms um, almost as much as he quotes any other portion of the scripture And there's so much packed in this first psalm it, He's really lining out the two paths that we can choose, that you can choose the path of the righteous and the path of the wicked, or we might say the path of the God-seeking or the path of the godless who just aren't seeking. Wicked, unfortunately, I think of the Wizard of Oz and the Wicked Witch. So we need to find another word for wicked. But it's really God-seeking and godless, righteous, wicked. Um, He's saying one path leads to life, one path leads to death. But just to to take a little deeper dive into this psalm. Um, Blessed is one who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. Well, a a lot of us, how many people ever think about life as like a journey or a hike or an adventure that you go out on? Yeah, yeah, me too. Um, one summer, I worked for a program called a Christian ministry in the national parks. Every day off, even if it was a half a day, I worked it on the west side of Rocky Mountain National Park. It was awesome. And there were one-hour hikes, two-hour hikes, three-hour hikes, four-hour hikes, five-hour hikes. You could go as far as you want. It was at 9,000 feet, so it took me a while to get used to all that. I went out jogging because my friend Spencer, who was in my fraternity, uh, he worked out there with me. and w- I was in charge of a singing waiter restaurant, the, the music part. We did two 20-minute shows each night. And, of course, no one was really singers, so that made it challenging. <laughs> but the, some of them sang in choir in high school, and that was good enough. We, it, was the, it was the 100th anniversary, it was the 100th year of, of um, Irving Berlin's birthday. He was turning 100 that year, so we did an Irving Berlin medley and all that kind of stuff. But Um, on these hikes you know sometimes you join up with another hiker for a while and sometimes it'd be downhill and sometimes it'd be in a meadow and then you'd have to climb some hand over foot and it was awesome and it was always worth the view it was always worth the accomplishment and in a way that's sort of like this path that the psalm writer is writing about blessed is the one but look what happens in the first three verses in your scripture Blessed is the one who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. So they're walking. They're moving forward, right? But who's joined up with their path? The wicked. And by wicked, I'm not talking about, I'll get you, my pretty. I'm talking about someone who is not seeking God or someone who is trying not to seek God. The godless. And sadly, John Wesley Preached a sermon called practical atheists In other words They were Christians on Sundays But practically they lived their life As though God did not even exist And that was in the 1700s He wrote that But how guilty are we sometimes Of just going through life Because we're so full of stuff so, so what the psalmist Is saying is on this path um, Blessed is the one who does not walk In the um, path Of the wicked in the counsel of the wicked. But then what's the next verb? Yeah, or stand in the way of sinners. What's happened? Went from walking to not walking anymore and standing in the way of sinners. And then what happens next? Sitting in the seat of mockers And there's no more progress. There's no more blessing, so to speak. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. I know there's been times when I've been in all three of those positions where my life is not moving forward in any kind of way that I would want it to. This is the kind of the double-edged part of the sword of the word of God. And it also means um, who you're listening to. Blessed is the one who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. You know, about two and a half years ago, um, I was going through, I was just dealing with a lot of anxiety. And it was right around the time of the inauguration of President Trump. And my friend, um, who's the um, psychologist said, "How much news are you watching?" And it hit me. I was watching a lot. the The whole election thing was fascinating, and I was going back and forth between MSNBC, CNN, Fox News. Now, my wife gave up watching TV for Lent this year, and guess who canceled our cable without telling me? <laughs> We still have Netflix (laughs) It's really okay But I his, This is the same guy that said You know coffee's got a half life of six to eight hours We all need friends like this That's walking in the council of the wise um, When I'm walking with Marty on our walks Literally that's how we meet Um, And he said how much news are you watching And I realized I was consuming it because I was so fascinated with the reactions. I was so fascinated by the blindness of the media to what happened and how that vote took place. And, and I mean, I was extremely shocked too. But, but what he was saying was don't skip news, but how much are you watching? And what I did is, is I went to the wire reports, which are just short paragraphs that you can click on to read full articles about what's going on, and it's not, all of the hype and all of the spin from whatever angle is your preference. And it also, again, changed my life. I think it was part of the buildup to what God did in me last September um, in terms of experiencing this peace that, that was at a level I had never experienced before by his Holy Spirit. So, But I realized I was walking in the counsel of the wicked or standing in the way of sinners or sitting in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on the law, his law, he meditates day and night. Does that mean you have to have a Bible in your hand at all times? No. But it sure helps to have some people to talk about it with. And I've found morning times work pretty well. I've started some men's groups at our church, because especially when all our kids were still at home, Having a group at 7 a.m. or 6.30 a.m., um, it didn't count as time away from my wife and children. You know what I mean? I wasn't going to go out at 7 a night or 6 or whatever during the witching hour of dinner and putting kids to bed. That's what we call it, the witching hour. <laughs> but, but in the mornings, it was okay. And for you to look around and find somebody that you would be willing to just say, how's your life, how's your walk with Christ, how's your ministry looking this week. Has, has changed my life. His delight is in the law of the Lord. On his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. You know my wife Lee grew up uh, in the Denver area and so we've gone out west fairly often um, She's got a family now in Rapid City, South Dakota, which is where Mount Rushmore is and the Black Hills and Custer State Park. It's really beautiful. But I'll never forget driving back from there, from out west, and it wasn't my first time out west, but the, the long drive, and it's all so scrubby and dry and brown, it's beautiful though. But I'll never forget, we took the northern route home up um, from South Dakota, we cut the corner of Minnesota because we wanted to see where she was born in Iowa. But when, we fir- when you're driving out there, you can tell anywhere there's any kind of a gully or a stream, because it's the only place there's any trees. And they're usually scrubby, gnarled, kind of cottonwoody kind of trees. And it, it, it made me realize for the first time how amazing Michigan is when it comes to the beauty. Of it. We don't necessarily have mountains. I know we've got the porkies, but um, it it really blew me away to see a, these trees that were clinging to the water even if it was a seasonal kind of a, a stream or a river and then we got to, all of a sudden it's like it switched over and there was green because we were near one of the tributaries to the Missouri River as we were heading that way and then toward the Mississippi River, of course it all changed when you get into Iowa but that image just opened my eyes to what the writer here is saying the one who delights in the law of the Lord on the law he meditates day and night like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither whatever he does prospers the delight in the law of the Lord like one of those trees and it It's amazing. You can be in a dry season, but if you're looking to God, God knows all about your dry seasons. And there's fruit to be yielded in season, which means it doesn't always happen all year long every day of our lives. And sometimes I think we need to hear that so we don't beat ourselves up so much. Chances are you're probably your own worst enemy and your own worst critic but his delight is in the law of the Lord. On his law, he meditates day and night. One thing about the law, you know, the Pharisees loved the law, but they forgot about the heart of the lawgiver. God's law is not so that you earn something from God. It's the fact when God gave the law to his people, he said, I love you, I have rescued you I have delivered you from captivity from slavery and they're in the wilderness still living in as as slaves still living as slaves to their sin their culture that they knew in Egypt they they didn't leave that behind it leaked into the wilderness even though they had been set free they weren't yet living free and so God gave them the law his scripture and and the problem is, through the centuries, the people who studied the law forgot the heart of the lawgiver. In other words, God said, I've already claimed you, now we're having a family meeting, let's do this in order to decrease the amount of suffering that we're all going through. He didn't gather him and say, okay, this is the law, if you do it, I'll be your dad. Picture it like a family meeting, and he's expressing the, the loving heart of a loving father giving this law to his kids. Don't lose the heart of the lawgiver as you read the law. And then, we'd love to leave it there, wouldn't we? But verse 4 starts, Not so the wicked, they're like chaff, that the wind blows away. That's the... I feel so dumb talking to people who are legit farmers. Um, But as I've read... The chaff is like the crusty outer part of the wheat, and they would throw it up on... The threshing floor was on the top of a hill in Palestine. They would throw it up high, and the chaff would blow away, but the kernels would fall right back down. I'm seeing a lot of nods, so... <laughs> and and that, that's the image that he's talking about, the wicked are like chaff, that the wind blows away. You know, um, it says we need to know God's word that we're not... Um, Caught up by every wind of doctrine That comes our way Therefore the wicked will not stand in judgment Nor the sinners in the assembly of the righteous For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous But the way of the wicked will perish I want to go back to What we said at the beginning The Psalms If you read through the Psalms um, just, Just a coaching point for that There's three types of Psalms There's Psalms of integration psalms of disintegration and psalms of reintegration. Like, if you are, if you are feeling, um, if you are going through a, an awful time in your life and you read a psalm that says, well, praise the Lord, let everything that has breath praise the Lord, you're like, okay, this is not connecting with me. That's because you are in a state of disintegration and you're reading a psalm of integration. Do you see the difference? Integration, the world is wonderful. I am am one with this, God. We give you all the praise. Psalms of disintegration is, my life is falling apart. God, where are you? They left that in the Bible. That was the people's cry. That was their hymn to God. And then Psalms of reintegration is, though the world around me is falling apart, yet will I praise the Lord. So as you read through the Psalms, just know that that's kind of what's going on. But what the Psalms also do is they point out the two paths, the path of the righteous and the path of the wicked, or the path of the God-seeking and the path of the Godless, or the path that leads to life and this one that leads to death. And in these two paths, one of the paths delights in God's word, and one of the paths scoffs. At God's word And it sounds harsh to say The godless are like chaff Not able to stand And the righteous are like A fruitful tree planted Prospering steadfast You know it's funny Because in worship We focus on the path of the righteous We do a lot of singing That celebrates the way of the righteous The people seeking God like that But the The understanding of the path of the godless Of the way without God is lost In our worship today It was not lost To the ancient Hebrews They talk about both paths But here's what we need to understand Both hmm, trajectories Thank you (laughs) Speaking of launched uh, (laughs) We need to understand Both trajectories And here's the deal. The righteous get what they're seeking and the godless get what they're seeking. You know, I heard someone say, those who believe they can and those who believe they can't are probably both right. But here's the deal. Um, C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Great Divorce, which is probably my favorite book, I'll... I've got a nice audio version, I'll probably listen to it two to three times a year. Um, and it's, kind of, it's it kind of talking about heaven and hell. And one of the lines in there is so haunting to me. You know, in the Lord's Prayer, we say, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And, and in this book, one of the people says, C.S. Lewis writes it in the first person, so they're saying it to C.S. Lewis, on the outskirts of heaven he says in the end there's only two kinds of people those who say to God thy will be done and those to whom God says thy will be done if you truly don't want me okay Do you get it? Yeah. The godless get their wish to be left alone. But here's the thing that we must understand. The two paths, the pathway of the righteous, the pathway of the wicked. There's only one person who has ever walked in the way of the righteous. And that's Jesus only Jesus has walked in the way of the righteous. The two paths of righteousness and wickedness are far, far apart, except for the one point in history where they converge, and that's at the cross, the cross of Jesus Christ. And it's there that Jesus took upon himself all the shame, the guilt, and the judgment of the wicked and the godless. And he remained faithful. The righteous one is one of the scriptural names for Jesus. It's at the cross that we who travel the way of the wicked, the way of the godlessness in our thinking and in our living can finally cross over through grace to the path of the righteous. May his word be ours and a part of our daily life and a part of this journey that we go on yes Bible B-I-B-L-E can stand for basic instructions before leaving earth but I need it to be so much more than that for myself because the way you get there is moment by moment And praise be to God for his son Jesus, the one who walked the path of the righteous for our sakes. And it is by scripture alone that we know this. Let's pray.